Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. We have a special guest today, my friend, Chef Aliza Green. And here's the reason I say a special friend, because we met so many years ago and our careers have overcrossed and done all sorts of in and out and IACP and also I don't remember which conference it was but you were a keynote speaker at a conference that I was at I may have been speaking on something else but it wasn't IACP and you were fabulous and that's what I remember really getting to know you a little bit so welcome well, thank you, Denise. It's really wonderful to see you and wonderful to be a guest on your show. I'm honored. Well, you look marvelous, as we say in Hollywood. Oh, thank you. And of course, we're silver foxes. We, we, we try to lose it, but we can't because we've got it. That's what I say. That's right. You know what? I don't care what age you are. If you've got it, you've got it. Now, so madam, <laughs> I follow you on Facebook. But I need to tell, and you, oh, I have to say this up front and I'll say it again at the end. I get your newsletter and the, your newsletter is fabulous. So just so people know, and it, it's um, alisagreen.com, right? That's what. Yes, it's, okay. it's A-L-I-Z-A, green like the color.com. People Perfect. can sign up for my newsletter through that. And so and that's, uh, I'd love to have more people oh, do that. Well, I got one today. So, and I sent it to Cindy so that she would have it also. So when she does our little advertising for this, you give people a, a recipe, you give people some culture, you give people um, information about your culinary tours that we'll talk about. But one of the word that I love that you use in your newsletter is a, the, a pioneer a pioneer woman chef. And this is the truth. The first, well, I, this is the truth. So you have to, now we have to ask you how you got into cooking and when you went to culinary school or when you became a chef and tell us a little bit about your early days. Yeah, the early days seem quite <laughs> a long time ago now, but I, I do have a, an interesting story. I would say that um, I, I, had a childhood where I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time traveling through my father's work. He was a scientist oh. and he did uh, work in taught in different places, conferences, a fellowship. And he was actually a theoretical physicist, very far from being a chef that I, I, I followed nothing of his, but uh, I got the taste for travel and I got the taste for, you know, learning about cultures and food was a way of doing that. And I had, there's some kind of knack that I had because even my very early memories, so many of them have to do with food, very strong memories. And by the time I was about 11, I was already cooking for my family. Wow. So there was something that was leading me in that direction. I did not really think about it as a career. I was more, you know, I'm going to go to college. I had this academic background. I was a good student. But when I got into school, I kind of realized that I didn't have a direction. I had been doing a lot of traveling in the five years up until that, uh, really exploring the world and loving it. And uh, I thought, well, what is the thing that I love to do when I spend all my time doing three things, reading books, traveling and cooking. So I decided that I would uh, leave school for a year, try to find a job 
cooking and see if I liked it. And if not, I would go back. So this was in the mid seventies. And I did some private catering on my own to try to learn more and, you know, get a little more experience, but I did not go to culinary school. It was also at a time when really the only school that was around was the Culinary Institute of America. I'm sure. Uh, Almost no women. And very much oriented to continental, very classic Escoffier kind of formal food. That was not my thing at all. So, um, but it was also at a time when in Philadelphia, but in many other cities, we were having an incredible culinary renaissance. Uh, where restaurants were opening up left and right, a lot of countercultural people like would identify with Alice Waters as being one kind of in yeah. that vein. Many yeah. of the people that opened restaurants in those years, especially the women, uh, kind of came to it from this countercultural standpoint. And I was like that. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity. Um, there was, you know, it's expanding field. So it was difficult. It took me about a year of knocking on doors and people laughing at me, you know, what do you, well, women, we're not going to hire you. You know, you know, you don't have this or that, but eventually I got a break. And that's one point that I really strongly want to make is that everybody needs a little bit of help from somebody. Everybody needs to give help. Everybody needs to get help. So I heard from a friend that kind of third hand that this couple was opening a restaurant. They were in the first class of the Philadelphia Restaurant School, which opened to have people open storefront restaurants. And they, I knew that they were opening. I wrote them this kind of impassioned letter, you know, why they should hire me. And they did. And it was a fantastic opportunity because I got to uh, do all the testing with them and open this small place, work every station. And really from there, I went on to, you know, kind of a, I went to other kinds of restaurants, you know, I kept wanting to learn, looking for people that had something to teach me because it was only so far more I could go on my own. And then again, I got another break where I was the chef, I was the sous chef in a restaurant, a Northern Italian restaurant, a wonderful restaurant that had recently opened. And the chef and the owner had a falling out six weeks after the restaurant, 250 seat restaurant, by the way, had uh, had a falling out and that person lost their job. And the owner came, called me up one night and said, can you come and meet me at the London Bar and Grill 11 o'clock? I'm like, oh, what is he wants to, you know, pass on me or, you know, what's going on here? I said, okay, I, I went over there. And he and the, the owner and the director of the restaurant offered me the job. And I said, no, I said, you know, I don't have management experience. I can't do this job. You know, this is, I mean, it was really jumping in at the deep end, but eventually they convinced me that they would help me. And I thought that if I didn't, you know, I should give it a try. And I did. And I spent six years there. It was, you know, it was a, uh, took a lot out of me, you know, it was always, there's always a high price, but I also, uh, studied Italian. I had a, a two-hour private Italian class once a week for five years. I went to Italy every year so that I could learn from the, you know, people there. I could read Italian books. At that time, there were very few Italian cookbooks in English. I wanted to read La Cucina Italiana in the original. And, you know, just that whole culture, I just loved it. And we, I know we're going to talk about my tours later on, but I'm getting ready to go on Friday on my Sicily culinary tour. So back to Italy for me, which is puts me in a happy place. Anyway, 
So I had quite a few, you know, I had a long years. I had some very prominent restaurants where I was a chef. Another one was Apropos that was kind of California style when all the California restaurants were just really inspiring me. And I'd go out to San Francisco and I'd see all these women at the front in the kitchens and, you know, it was always open kitchens, at least 50% of them had women. And that just absolutely, you know, blew me, blew my mind that this could be because I was so alone in my position, you know, the constant battles and, uh, you know, people trying to get rid of me and, you know, the, what do you call it? Depose me, I guess is the word. So, um, and then I was a partner at a, also a very prominent restaurant called the White Duck Cafe. Uh, Judy Wicks is quite an activist uh, in the culinary field, but also sh- social activist. And I did that until, uh, I, I did it until my, I, then I got pregnant, uh, kind of had to choose, you know, am I going that way, going to have kids or not have kids? And somehow this is something that, I don't know, I got that hunger, I got the, you know, I have to have a baby. And I did, uh, you know, it had already a strong career, but I did that work until my son was about two. And it became, I mean, for an example, and this is what women go through, which is just, it's, it's insane. Uh, I'm the one that drove from work to the hospital to have my son. I mean, I was at work on the line at 9 p.m. He was born at 2 a.m. That tells you how close I, that I cut that. Uh, then I had a babysitter that would come and there was a room near the kitchen at the white dog and she would be with my son and I would run off the line, go nurse him and then go run back to the line. And so I did this, you know, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And after, you know, at the end of a year, I really felt that I had to make a change that I couldn't continue. Plus then I got pregnant again. I had a daughter and I moved into many other, always stayed in food, but moved into all kinds of other aspects of the food industry. But see, this is, well, there's several things I have to make a point. And we have younger women, I don't know why, but we have younger women listen to our podcast because they reach out to me. And, I, and a lot of them are in food or a lot of them are young mothers whose career is mm-hmm. now in limbo. Do you know what I mean? Because they're at home. So yes. I think your words, there's a couple of points. One, what I really hear as you talk about, like taking over the job that you didn't think you were qualified for, um, and then staying there six years, that's just plain perseverance and determination. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's just, that's just not giving up. And then studying, studying Italian and and really learning your craft. And I think that these are such important points. Sometimes when Cindy and I would take interns in the last few years of my business, they would, the interns would say things because we'd say, they, they washed dishes, they carried, they took the garbage out. They were supposed to go to the grocery store and pay 600, you know, buy $600 and carry it back. And they were supposed to make three dozen perfect cookies that all matched. Do you know what I mean? No, it was not exciting work. Do you know what I mean? But right. that's what the job entailed. And sometimes they would say to me after two or three months, well, when will I move up? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, when will I be the lead stylist? And I said, well, probably after you've worked for 10 years and, and 
handled every kind of situation there is and learn the whole management because what food styling really is is managing your clients expectations because you're a food stylist not a magician i mean so everything you touched on is so similar and i also when i was in catering i was still in childbearing years and I worked for, I got the executive chef job. It's very similar to yours. I mean, I used to, I do say this to people. And when I would speak, I'd say, the good news about the restaurant business or the food business is someone's always quitting. So if you're good, they're going to they're gonna move you up. You can get moved up quicker than, you'll never move up this fast at IBM as you can in the restaurant or the food. So or true. There's always going to be an opportunity for that person that's hungry to move up. That's it. I'd say the chef either has a drug problem, too many, too many girlfriends, or he, or, a, or he drinks at lunch. Trust me, you're gonna get a break. I love that you just grabbed it and took it. And also, but talking about children, when I was still in catering, I was I had a boyfriend, but I remember thinking, because it was my kitchen, I was the executive chef. We did multi-million dollars in business. And I had this beautiful, big commissary. And I remember for a moment, I thought I could have a playpen in the corner. Do you know what I mean? And I thought, I don't know how that good that is for the baby, but I would not leave my baby alone. The baby would be with me here in the kitchen a lot. So, but it's a very hard, it's working on the line and having children is pretty damn hard. There is no getting around that. And men don't usually have to make that decision. That's the difference, you know, one of the main differences. But I love that that you had two children and then you realized that you could still make a career in food, but you didn't have to be on the line. Yes. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about what I transitioned into. Please tell uh, us now. So uh, one thing is I had started, I got involved with some uh, different culinary organizations. It was American Institute of Wine and Food, IACP, Les Dames d'Escoffier. I felt that I needed to learn how organizations worked. And so I, I got involved with some fundraisers, Share Our Strength was another one, all of which gave me very, very good experience, um, which led network. to a lot of, and the network, and the absolutely, network. a fantastic network. And then eventually I did a lot of uh, consulting for restaurants, food companies, hotels, but I also um, started writing. And I had uh, written a very nice article for a program book for an event that we had put on. And the editor of the Daily News, Philadelphia Daily News saw it and offered me a, um, a column. So I did a weekly food column uh, there for, I don't know, maybe three, four years. And then I wanted to move up to the other newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I, you know, I went after that and eventually I did get to do a weekly column there. I had columns for uh, fine cooking and for clean eating and for prevention magazine. So fair amount of writing. And that led to, you know, one of my goals from the beginning was to be able to write cookbooks. Yeah. So um, I had, along with the writing, I started doing food styling, uh, television food styling. And this is also about uh, opportunity knocks and you don't know where it's gonna come from. So one day I get a call from somebody that said, I have a client coming to Philadelphia to be on QVC. They're gonna be here the day after tomorrow. I need food for this show. Can you do it? I'd never done anything like that. I knew nothing about it. I said, yes. 
So I, you know, I, I prepared the food for that. And that turned into, I don't know, six or seven years of doing hundreds of shows in a year, all having to do mostly with the cookbook authors, but some of them having to do with food products and things like that. It was all live television. My restaurant experience was fantastic for that because I already knew how to think on my feet and how to make decisions. You know, and you have to be able to, you don't know what's going to be. Anything can happen when you're on live television. And uh, so you're going to be prepared, but, you know, there's always going to be the unexpected. When you and I have talked about this once, we talked about this. People didn't realize, and this is amazing to me. In the early days of QVC, and I remember you telling me how you got the phone call and you went. Mine was... All my clients did infomercials, huge Mm -hmm. infomercials. So when QVC showed up, my clients in LA, these huge production companies said, hey, we're going to go to QVC, Denise. I didn't even know what QVC was. Do you know what I mean? But this is early. This is like, and if you remember, and I know you knew, but I got there the very first time, they didn't even have a table for me. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there was no kitchen. Now you go, it's the temple. Do you know what I mean? With style, kitchens and prop stands. So I got there and luckily our product, it was the very, one of the very first ones, it was a grill. So we had our product there. I had to go to the store. They sent me in a limousine to buy, (laughs) to go buy hot dogs and hamburgers. And then they had no china, they had no props. So I bought paper plates and a paper tablecloth and some sunflowers. So I made it look as nice as I possibly could. I think I slept in the warehouse because even they got me a hotel room and I was eating, I was kind of like, you'd see a green room and there might be a celebrity or I'd see employee food and I would just steal something like a dog. I was stealing other people's sandwiches. Right off the table. Right off their table, I, you know, I assumed I wouldn't get, but I remember I had to work all night long to get the food ready because, and I'm cooking on a burner, but my favorite was at one point, and do you remember, and then they got a little better, and then one of the times I went, it was still so new, I would say to people, I'm going, and you had to get to Philadelphia, but then it took two hours to get to King of Prussia, or whatever this Yeah, it was far. Far. Yeah, very out of the way. And people would say, what is it, Denise? I said, it's the shopping channel. And I remember Mm -hmm. that people made fun of it until you realized that they were doing like $5 million a year. And and cookbook authors, like you said, I went with one or two from LA. I remember one, I wasn't her assistant that day, but I was there at the same time. Julia Child only went on QVC once or twice. Julia Child came off stage and everybody said, are you okay? Cause she looked stunned because she had sold 18,000 books in like seven minutes. And she said, I sold 18,000 books in seven minutes. Well, all of a sudden QVC looked a little better to her. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's, it's true. And um, it, it um, people would sell, there were some of the authors there were people that QVC wanted to promote for whatever reason, and they would put them on, you know, one after another. But it uh, over a million dollars of cookbook sales in one day. That I mean, that's the kind of the numbers were just absolutely insane. People had never heard of such a thing. One of those times when staggering is right. 
one of the times that Julia Child was on there, I did her styling. That was a little bit later. But the, the most incredible time I ever had there was IACP was in Philadelphia. Oh, yes. I remember the year, maybe 95, some, yeah. somewhere around then, the con food conference. So all of these big shots from across the country were coming to the city and they all booked on QVC and they all hired me. So I had 13 authors oh, in my one God. week. I made 160 different dishes in one week. I had everybody that I knew working with me, you know, in my kitchen, on the, you know, the dining room table, on the floor, going, buying more, buying more, going out there, coming back, going. It was absolutely insane. But anyway, I learned a lot. I met a lot of amazing people. And it also led to me being able to write the books because that kind of gave me the the, uh, the income while I was trying to get established Absolutely. as a cookbook author. Absolutely. And again, I had an opportunity. Uh, there was a quite a famous uh, French chef in Philadelphia, Georges Perrier. He had Lebec Fan restaurant. He was so, you know, he was really the guy in French food in Philly. And he has a street named after him. So he had actually offered me a chef job, a cook's job uh, years before. And I... Really, I was very torn. I didn't know whether to go work for him in the French, you know, classic French kitchen or go work and be the executive chef of this California style grill, uh, fresh restaurant. I went to the California one because I decided I'd been in charge too much would be too difficult for me to go back to, you know, being a line cook. But, you know, part of me, you know, thought about something that I could have missed. In any case, I knew that he respected me as a chef and he asked me to co-author his cookbook. So I worked on that book and he also appeared on QVC. So I got to do his work for that. It was a wonderful experience. We both, you know, got a lot out of it. I have absolutely nothing, you know, bad that the, the book was beautiful, it sold really well. And then that really opened the door to me for the publisher. Uh, you know, of course I knew I'd have to take whatever they offered me as far as pay, I would have to take because there were 50 other people lined up that wanted to do the same book because he was, you know, such a prestigious uh, person to work with. So I did that. And then after that, I wrote my first book, which was the Bean Bible. And the Bean Bible came out in 2000. And still something that I'm very proud of and, you know, will go on. But I've done 15 books and I'm working on my next book project right now, which is goes back to something about uh, it's another story about uh, being open to opportunity and that you never know when that opportunity, where it's going to come from. Uh, so I was working on a book called The Field Guide to Meat. It was part of a little series, very nice books. There's Field Guide yes, to Meat, Produce, Herbs and Spices, yes. um, and um, Produce. Produce was the first one. So I decided I needed to learn more about meat. And I went to take this intensive course at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. And while I was there, there was a bunch of people from the Caribbean. Uh, the US government sent them there because it was the time of mad cow and they were afraid that they would, they didn't want them to buy South American beef. They wanted them to buy American beef. So they sent all these people, they were F&B directors, food and beverage directors and supermarket managers to this course. And I happened to sit next to this gentleman at one of the dinners. He was from Aruba. And he started talking to me. He said, well, you know, he was very into food, former restaurateur, sommelier, very accomplished. 
and he said he wanted to do a book about the food of Aruba. And I said, I could do that. You know, at the time I had two or three books, whatever it was, but I spoke up and I ended up uh, making eight trips there, wrote the cookbook, was published in Venezuela, was never sold in America. It was only sold through the restaurants on the island. Uh, but it did win a gourmand prize and, you know, it was some, it was a big accomplishment. And then to take it around to today, and there's a lot of time, you know, lots of other things happen in between, including starting the tours, which I know we'll go back to. Um, I got a phone call about six months ago that he and a chef friend who I didn't expect to ever hear from, you know, sure things a long time goes by. He and a very prominent chef there decided they wanted to do another book. And they asked me if I would do that. So I've already been down there twice. I was there in January. I just came back last week, meeting with the chefs, going, doing, watching, do with the photographer, with uh, getting the recipes. And I'm going down there in another month, back again. So it's a, you know, something that came back again that I never expected would do that. But we had a wonderful relationship to begin with, and it, and you know it. There it is. It, it, and you it, did a good uh, job. Now and you did a good well, job. I did a good job. You I know, did a good job. I did a good job. This is something when people, for longevity in your career, do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. perseverance and determination, and not giving up because there's good times, there's bad times. But I think that's absolutely amazing. But several things you said. The opportunity, I've sat next to people that changed my life at a dinner. Do you know what I mean? At least it changed my life because they maybe said something to me and I thought, oh, I never thought of that. Or, but the other thing is, and this is for cookbook authors because we have a lot of cookbook authors that listen to us um, and they make comments or they send me private messages. See, I think being a co-author or writing a celebrity cookbook, not only is it sometimes more money than you get for your own book, do you know what I mean? But you, you get so many connections from that book. You get so much business if that book sells well. And people used to say to me, why do you write other people's cookbooks? And I didn't write them all alone, do you know what I mean? But if Cindy and I did the 150 recipes for them, but then we got the styling and then we fed the pantry list or different things to a hired writer, we were charging them six figures by the time we were finished, do you know what I mean? It took a year. But people say, well, why would you do that? I'd say, because I can't sell a million books in one month on HSN or QVC, but my name's in that book. <laughs> so right. a whole lot of people are going to see my name and the thank you and the acknowledgement. So that's why you do it. So I, I think that that's gotten, and that's part of, I mean, publishing is in such, uh, <sighs> publishing is, I don't want to say it's in disarray, but it's like anything. It's mountain building. Things are changing. Traditional publishing yes. houses are, are not doing as well. Blogging changed. Publishing, like it changed many things, because everybody thinks they are a publisher because they published their blog. And, you know, and that's great. It's entrepreneurial. I think it's wonderful. But I also think that they then they lose some opportunities because they're, they're used to being the leader and they don't realize that sometimes when you're not the leader, but you're in the, you're in the front seat, you learn a whole lot. <laughs> well, the more you can be exposed to if you're you know, open-minded and you're you know, not open-minded, but your ears are open. 
Yes. You're always, you're always going to be learning. And you just, I mean, I've just had so many examples of this. Uh, I, the, the, um, I was at the IECP conference and I decided to go to a food style that was in Baltimore, maybe 2004. Uh, my field guide to produce had just came out and lucky for me, the New York Times covered it oh. just in the, the, just during the conference. So, you know, that was, uh, couldn't have been better timing, but I decided to go to a, um, it was a media workshop, media training workshop. So while I was there, a gentleman came up to me at the end and said, you know, I saw, you know, about your book, this field guide to produce. I'm the marketing director for this produce company. We'd like to hire you to be, you know, do product um, uh, representation, develop recipes, uh, you know, do the go on television and, you know, media for the product. And it was, again, an amazing experience. I did that for, I don't know, quite a number of years, you know, four or five years, as long as uh, you know, everything has a lifetime. And but had I not gone to that, right. I haven't, you know, it, nothing, it, it wouldn't have happened. That's so right. I, and I think that the food business in particular is really full of these opportunities because most food people are gregarious. They're, uh, they, you know, they're kind of bon vivants. That's why they go into that business. They like to travel. They like to talk to people. They want to, you know, be, they're creative. They like uh, to have fun. And food people are They want to have fun. <laughs> they have fun. Uh, and they like to make connections. So, you know, there's this kind of thing, um, as much as it's changed and you and I have seen enormous changes, you know, through the, through the years, through the decades, but there's still something about the type of person that's attracted to that business, I agree. which means that, you know, that one that you talk to, maybe they're going to call you, you know, somebody, or maybe they know somebody, or maybe something will happen. And and I think in, I want to make the point that for women, especially, we have to be open to opportunity because we are often not going to have the opportunity through the, you know, the straight and narrow is not going to provide that. You're going to have to, you know, think outside the box, the, all those kinds of things, especially if you're, you know, uh, going to have children or there's other kinds of things. You're just not going to. You know, of course, there's much more, uh, many more people, you know, going to culinary school and things like that. But I think that we really need many women invent their own jobs. Uh, you, well, um, you did that, didn't you? Well, you know I mean, what? That's Absolutely. I had no choice, kind of. I worked in a couple of restaurants in San Francisco because I wanted to understand after culinary school, because I had never worked in the restaurant industry before I went to culinary school. And in those days, that was actually a prerequisite at the CCA where I went to. But mm -hmm. I had such strong letters of recommendations from two people, a client, and I'd also run, um, I'd managed a real estate company that they said, well, okay, you know, and so they let me in. But in those days, it was, I mean, you really had to, they didn't let any, most people in. It wasn't just an issue of paying the tuition. You really had to qualify. So I got in, and of course, then I realized that it was entire, being a chef was nothing that I thought it was. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that I was, unprepared for the entire industry, but 
So when I got out of school, I worked in several restaurants and I totally did it. So I would understand how the food got to from the back door out onto the client, mm-hmm. to the, table. the plate. And the reason, and also because I was good with money and good with figures and good with percentages because I'd been in real estate, the biggest yeah. mistakes I saw in kitchen, it was never the food, it was the mismanagement and that they didn't have a clue what the, how much money it cost on the plate. So then um, when I got the chance to be an executive chef, when I moved up because the chef literally just one day was snorting cocaine in his car and forgot to come into the work. And it happened about a dozen <laughs> times. And that day they actually fired him. And I remember thinking, okay, we're headed in the right direction. But Oh my goodness. Computers were just starting. I mean, programs for kitchens were just starting. And we got an influx of money into the catering company. And I said, you know, we can, I, but I did it all with pen and paper, pen, paper and pen, you know, and, um, and a calculator. But I said to people, this is all about money. You know what I mean? This isn't about talent. I mean, you, you, we want a famous chef or you want to do this and we want good food, but all these restaurants fail because they don't make any money. Correct. <laughs> and so then after Correct. that, and there and then, was- you know, after that, and I loved it and I loved the business part of it and I loved cooking the food, but then I was able to work for two or three of the biggest restaurant consultants you know his name. I can't. Bill DeMaine and Rudy Mick and these guys hired me. And all I did was work with the kitchen staff. Do you know what I mean? All I did was show them if we measured measured the steak and cut the steak to six inches, six ounces and how we things, and write their recipes for them. So I did that for a number of years and I loved it. And then it, you know, then I became a food stylist and then I wound up writing books and, you know, it's the same, very similar progression because very similar. And you're so, and I'm so grateful because I loved every minute of it. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, and I'm so grateful now. I want people to know. We will, of course, have all the information up. Miss Cindy, when we go to broadcast this, we'll put how to reach Elisa and how her website again will repeat it. And we're going to ask her to come back for a part two to talk about your trips. Now, I want to go on your trip to Portugal in 2023. So I have to look at that and get my... Um, my my dollars together because that trip looks so fabulous and I have been to Portugal once I was by myself but it's so easy to navigate there and it's so gorgeous but I want to go with you because and your tours look fabulous so people that are listening know that there's going to be a part two and we're going to talk about culinary tours and I cannot thank you enough for joining us today well this is so much fun and I you know it's like we're on the opposite coast but we have had so many connections in our careers. It's phenomenal. Crisscross. It's crisscrossed. And it's you know fantastic. what? Fantastic. It's so wonderful because, like you, several women from IACP that became friends, the mentors that I had from IACP, do you know what I mean? Julia, Ann Willen, Irina Chalmers. I mean, and I say this to people, and I know that groups are so many of the conferences are struggling I think it's wonderful that we can get everybody people say oh you don't need these conferences anymore because you can just email people but I try to say to people when you have eaten with someone at lunch 
And then you, you later on may have a glass of wine with them in another you know, part of the conference. I said, you know that person and you can trust that person and you decide if you like that person, but it's, it's so different. It's a different bond. And well, very lucky. We have to talk about the, the power of serendipity. Yes. And that is something that you're gonna have in a conference or yes. some other kinds of event that you go to. It's just not the same as uh, that, you know, email, Facebook, Insta, direct not. message, whatever, all of them, not the same. Thank you so much for today. Now, people can reach us at women, uh, womenbeyond at iCloud.com. People go to our Facebook page, Women Beyond a Certain Age. On Facebook, we have a website. It's womenbeyondacertainage.com. And in the very near future, we're adding a new page to our website. And it's going to be my memoir in pieces. Because as Cindy knows, I've only written, I don't know, a thousand pages of memoir. And you know what? It's not concise. And it doesn't go in order. And you know what I've decided? I don't think it has to. So we're gonna, I'm gonna put it up in different pieces at a time. And if people don't like it, they don't have to read it. <laughs> I'm so tired. I've had, I have one of the great, I have a great agent and we sent it out and had a big bid from Ingram for about a week. And then they dumped me like a hot potato right before COVID and said, nah, 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 you're not famous enough for you to write this book. I said, okay, thank you so much. I, I, I wanted to hear that today. But then afterwards I thought to myself, I don't care what those other people think. I'm doing it for me. So, well, right. I have no choice. So anyway, but please, people well, reach out and you reach out to Lisa when she's up and her I totally, totally tell people, and I mean this, get her newsletter because there's your tangine recipe was what I saw today. It was, it, oh, it was, looked delicious. So thank yes, you. Yes, Moroccan chicken tagine. It's beautiful. Oh, that's a beautiful dish. Beautiful. After four, doing four tours there I did learn a thing or two about Moroccan cooking so and, I, and I'm a person that loves to share you know it makes me happy to share what I know and to make other people you know have be able to make delicious food for themselves and have these wonderful experiences I thank you so much and as always I thank Cindy who keeps the train on the tracks because Cindy is OCD and I'm ADD, so you put us together and you get a, a perfect force. <laughs> We're a wonderful oh, well. team. Thank you, and I, I'm going to talk to you again soon, and thank you so much. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Well, I told you she was going to be a fantastic fan.